Amen. Good morning. Good to see everybody today. Hallelujah. I know how it is, Jesse. It's too easy up here. <laughs> In the first service, you know, this morning I was telling myself, I am not going to get carried away. I want to teach this and stay calm and just kind of get these points across. And wow. Yeah. So anyway, I understand what you're saying. There's an anointing up here that just, man, and then when you just think about the goodness of God, you just get all excited and I just, I can't help but just proclaim his goodness. And, you know, that's what pastor, when he started this series uh, on good, which I'm just going to continue today, he is in Sand Springs at Church That Matters. He's a uh, part of their uh, overseeing board of their church, and so they brought him in to speak to them this morning, and so I'm just going to continue. He'll be back next week to continue on with this message, but uh, what God told him before he started this series was this. God told him, proclaim my goodness, uh, proclaim the goodness of God to the weary. That's what he said, proclaim the goodness of God to the weary, because we know you know, I hate to even mention, you know, all the things that have gone on uh, in the world the last couple of years, but we know we've seen things that we had never seen in our lives before, and our world is changing right before our eyes, and, you know, there's just a lot of uh, crazy things going on in the world, and uh, people are losing heart, you know, people are losing heart because they're getting so focused on what's going on in the world that by default they're taking their focus off where it should be, which is on the Lord. And so what we're trying to do is bring us back to a focus on the goodness of God. I'm reminded of Psalm chapter 27 verse 13 where it says, David said, I would have lost heart if I, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. You know, you can get so caught up in what's going on in the world today that you can lose heart and stop believing that you're going to see the goodness of God manifested in your life. And so that's what we're wanting to talk about this morning is, is the goodness of God. You know, whenever I was growing up in church, uh, my grandfather was a pastor and we went to church just down the road here, about a mile away from here. And I remember, man, they, it was a Pentecostal church, and they used to say, uh, someone would get up and say, God is good. And then everybody else would say, all the time. I know you all know it. And they'd say, all the time. And they'd say, God is good, you know. But then you hear them later when you're outside of church, and I, I would wonder, do they really believe what they're saying? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's easy in here. Uh, and what I realized is that, well, you know, and I'm not being critical. I'm just saying that I realize there's a lot of emotional stuff in the church. And a lot of people's relationship with God is emotional. And we need some cerebral Christianity, not just emotional Christianity. Because the problem is, is people, uh, they base their understanding of who God is based on how they feel or based on their circumstances in life. And if everything's going good, then God must be good. <laughs> but listen, I, I'm going to tell you this this morning, that as a matter of fact, God is good. 
Period. That's who he is. That's the essence of who God is, is that he is good. And your uh, perception of God doesn't change who he is. I'm going to say that again. Your perception of God doesn't change who he is. He is good. But I'll tell you this, it's important that you get this worked out in your life because your perception of God will determine how you experience God. Mm-mm-mm. Your perception of God will determine how you experience God. If you don't believe he's good, you won't experience his goodness. Didn't Jesus said this? Uh, Jesus said this. He said, uh, so be it unto you according to your faith. So how you perceive God will determine how you experience God. So it's important that we get this uh, worked out in our minds because here's the thing is I hear people say with their mouth, God is good, but then I know they're wrestling with it in their head. Because when troubles come, trials come, they begin to doubt the goodness of God. Okay? Because they're not basing it simply on what the Word of God has declared. They're basing it on what they're seeing with their eyes or what they're experiencing in their life. And in Psalm 119, verse 68, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because we know that all Scripture is inspired by God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the psalmist says this. He says, you are good and you do good. That's a statement of fact. You are good and you do good. So that is a truth that we have to, uh, by faith, accept despite the circumstances. God is good. And if you'll do that, man, that'll be a great anchor in your life. When you're going through storms, when you're going through troubles, you know, we tend to get tossed about. A lot of times we're getting tossed about because we're beginning to waver and doubt the goodness of God. Where's God in this, you know? And we have to settle it in our heart that God is good, period. Because He is. If we are doubting, it's just in us. It has nothing to do with him. Like I said, your perception does not change who he is. He is good. You know, the reason we need to get this worked out is because it provides opportunity for the enemy to hinder our faith when we doubt the goodness of God. It's just like an opening in our armor. (laughs) It's an opening in our mind that he creeps into when we're not settled on this fact that God is good. But the truth of the matter is, is that we've had a whole lot of help getting this twisted. We've had a lot of help getting this twisted, whether God is good or not. You know, from the devil, one of his main tactics is to smear the reputation of God by blaming things the devil's doing on God. I mean, Pastor did a whole teaching uh, on Wednesday nights uh, not long ago called Smear Campaign and talking about how the kingdom of darkness uh, has, a, has a, had a strategy to do things to humanity, then blame it on God. Oh, man. 
And it gives him an opportunity when we fall for that. It gives him an opportunity to hinder us in our faith. Because you know what faith is? Faith basically is trust. Faith is, is uh, the evidence uh, of things unseen. It's believing God's good even when it don't look like it. So faith is the ability to trust. It's the ability to pull your, put your full trust on God even when it looks like all, everything is going to hell in a handbasket. You know? Because trouble's coming. <laughs> I'll just tell you, in this life, there's going to be troubles, there's going to be trials, there's going to be tribulation. Jesus said that, uh, the Bible says that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but I will deliver them out of everyone. Every one as we trust in him. But we've had a lot of help getting it twisted. Like I said, the enemy, that's one of his main tactics is to get us to believe that it's God doing the things that he's doing. Man, what a, what a deception. Suddenly we're resisting things we should be submitting to and submitting to things we should be resisting because we've got, we've got it twisted. You know, and not only the enemy, not only the devil, Satan, is causing uh, people to believe that, but also in our world today. You know, one of the things that they call natural disasters is acts of God. You know, in insurance claims and stuff, they call natural disasters acts of God. So they attribute tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, stuff like that to acts of God. They disparage the nature and the character of God as if he's wanting to, to destroy, as if he's wanting to steal and kill and destroy. Just like Jesus said in, in John 10, 10, he made it real simple. He said, the thief comes not but for to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. See how simple it is? The problem is we complicate it by all these lies and deceptions that are out there, and it gets us wavering in our thinking about what the truth is. You know, and then sad to say, we've had preachers um, get it twisted for us. You know, we've had, and I'll say this, I believe well-meaning ministers have said things that have caused people to, you know, doubt the goodness of God. You know, they've explained, just like in Job, you know, they've explained that uh, the reason certain things are happening in your life is, you know, because maybe God's trying to teach you something. <laughs> well, you know, it says the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Job said that. That was in the Bible, but everything in the Bible is truth, but it's not necessarily the truth. <laughs> I mean, Job said that, but it wasn't true. There were many things Job said that were not accurate because he was saying it based on his perception of God. Oh, man. So we've had ministers who've said things, you know, when it comes to the loss of a loved one, and I know this is a sensitive subject, but losses of loved ones, people say, well, God needed them in heaven. Absolutely false. If God needed us in heaven, he would have created us in heaven. Listen, God's got heaven on lock. He ain't got no problem in heaven. <laughs> He's large and in charge in heaven. He's got everything under control. I can promise you that. 
Where he needs the body of Christ is on earth. Operating in truth and in authority and in power. So we got to get this situated, you know, and it doesn't matter, you know, what your preacher said, what your grandparents said, what your neighbor said. It doesn't matter what you thought, felt, or imagined, or your opinion. That doesn't matter. It's what does the Word say. So that's what we want to do is bring you back to a biblical understanding of the fact that God is good. He's inherently good. He can't be anything else but good. It's his essence. It's his nature. It's his character. Okay, so everything he does comes from that center that he is good. You know, in fact, the reason we waver in the term good is because we think, well, we base our understanding of good on people and comparing this person with that. Well, good. Let me just settle this for you, okay? Jesus said this. When the rich young ruler came to him, he said, uh, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said this. He said, There is none good but God. So listen, if you're one of those that think, Oh, I'm, I'm a good person, or you think somebody else is a good person, let me settle it for you. There is none good. Only one <laughs> And that is God. So our only standard of what good is, is God. The reason we waver in it is because we have this relative idea of what good is. None of us are good. Only God is good. That's why we get it mixed up. So turn to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. And I got that uh, give me five more minutes anointing on me earlier, except I forgot to ask. So I'm going to get, <laughs> I told Daniel I'm going to rock and roll this service and so we're going to get through it. Um, <laughs> that was a declaration of faith. I'm not saying, that. <laughs> I was saying that for my benefit, not yours. <laughs> So in Exodus 33, Moses is talking to God, and uh, God was talking to him about going into the promised land, and that God was telling him, I'm going to drive the nations that are in the land out from before your face so that you can inhabit the land. One other thing I will say about that, those those nations that he mentioned in there were all clans of giants. So he was getting ready to take them into this land that was filled with giants, filled with violence. Filled with walled cities. Um, And so he was talking to him about going in. And God had told him, I'm not going with you. Because these people here, they had just built a golden calf when Moses delayed on the mountain. And they were worshiping a false god. And so God said, I'm not going with you. And and actually he told Moses, he said, your people are stiff-necked. And Moses said, these are your people. <laughs> You're the one. <laughs> You're the one who brought them out of Egypt. And he said, I'll tell you another thing. If you don't go with us, I'm not going. <laughs> so Moses, Moses said they had repented and Moses uh, told God, he said, well, I'm not going if you're not going. And one thing about it is Moses realized that all the blessing of the promised land were worthless without the presence of God. That's one thing we need to realize is we need to not be focused on the, um, 
uh, we don't need to be focused on the provision of God, but the presence of God. That's what really matters. You can have everything. Look at the look at the uh, so-called, you know, the rich and famous and the stars and the actors and the people that seemingly have everything this world has to offer, but they actually have nothing. Actually, all that they have has them. But when you have the presence of God, you have everything, and then the Lord adds to your life. Oh, man. Come on. The Lord maketh rich, and he added no sorrow to it. Okay, so Moses was like, we ain't going. If you don't go with us, we're not going. So God says, okay, I'm going to go with you. And Moses says, something I got to have, though. I want to see your glory. In verse 18, he says, please show me your glory. And that's a heart we need to have. We need to, to desire to um, understand the glory of God above all else. The word glory is the word kabod, K-A-B-O-D in the Hebrew. And it simply means weighty. What it really means is if you took the sum total of who God is, that's what you would have. His essence who he is, his, the essence of the nature and character of God is his glory. So Moses said, show me who you are. I got to know you. We're going on this journey. We're going giant hunting. We're going to drive nations out of the promised land. I got to know you. I got to know who you are. He said, show me your glory. And God said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. I'll make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. In that unredeemed uh, condition, uh, just like when they would go into the Holy of Holies, if they were not prepared uh, ritually, the glory of God would kill them. They weren't able to sustain because of the fallen nature. Okay? And he said, uh, And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand till I've passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The first point I want you to see is in uh, verse 19. I'll make all my goodness pass, befi- pass before you. He's, the glory of God lies in the revelation of his goodness. The glory of God lies in the revelation of his goodness. The glory of God is the good, or God's goodness is the manifestation of who he is. God is good, and the manifestation of who he is is in his goodness. And then he says this, And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That statement, I'll be gracious, whom I'll be gracious, show mercy, whom I'll show mercy, is talking about the sovereignty of God. It's talking about his ability to choose who he's going to be good to. And I'm not talking about the extreme sovereignty of God that's taught like in Reformed theology that says that God has 
predestined certain people to be saved and others to not be saved, that's a bunch of hogwash. It's not scriptural. It doesn't stand up to the truth of what the Word of God declares. You know, the Bible says Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation means satisfaction. Jesus' sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God, not only for those who have received it, for those who have not yet to receive it. So I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about, because, you know, the Bible's, God's will isn't always done. That's what, that's what sovereignty teachers will tell you, is that everything that happens is God's will. Don't you see how the devil can use that to make you think, well, your sickness is of the will of God? Such a deception. But the Bible says that God's will is that none perish, but that all come to repentance. But let me ask you, are all coming to repentance? Well, it's God's will. God's will is that none perish. Are any people perishing? Absolutely. So that shows you the will of God is not always done. You know, the Bible teaches that you can lengthen your life. You can shorten your life by your choices. It's not God's will. He's given by his... Here, here, let me just solve this for you. In his sovereignty, he limited himself by his word. When he gave dominion on earth to man, he actually limited his ability into the affairs of men by his word. So he works through humanity who was given dominion on the earth. And so when I'm talking about sovereignty, I'm talking about who God has chosen to show grace and mercy to. Oh, my goodness. His goodness is magnified when you begin to see who he actually decides to be gracious and merciful to. And it might surprise you. <laughs> it might surprise you because most people think, well, the people who get blessed and have the favor of God and who receive healing and who, who receive things from God, those are people who are living holy lives. Those are people who are, who are good people. They're the people who are dotting all the I's and crossing every T. You know what? Um, I think of Abram. When God had disinherited the nations at Babel, because they chose to worship other gods. You know, all he did was said, you want to worship these false gods? Yeah, go ahead. I'll just turn, them over, turn you over to them. And he said, but I'm going to pick a man. And I'm going to raise up a nation. And I'm going to bless him so much that all the nations around are going to see how good I am. And they're going to be jealous of his God. <laughs> so he picked Abram. And most people would probably think, well, Abram must have been a, a really, uh, you know, righteous dude or something. But, you know, Joshua chapter 24 says this. It says that Abram and his father worshipped and served other gods before God called him. So he didn't pick him because he was, listen, God didn't pick Abram because Abram was pursuing God. Man. It was because God's sovereignty has to do with his purpose. And his purpose, when he disinherited the nations, was to pick a man, make a nation, and bring a savior through for the entire world. He's actually, it was his plan of bringing the nations all back to himself. 
So he didn't pick Abram because he was this great guy. In fact, Abram, the very first thing God told him to do is leave your family and follow me. And he took his family with him. (laughs) So he started out on the wrong foot. And Abram made stumble after stumble after stumble. But you know what he did? He kept following God. He kept following God. And so God didn't choose Abram because of Abram had any kind of inherent goodness. God chose Abram because of God's goodness and his desire to show his goodness to the entire world. You know, he also, in Deuteronomy, I'm not going to turn there just for time, but in Deuteronomy 7, it says, God, didn't, God basically says, I didn't choose you because you're a great nation. In fact, you're the smallest of all nations. I tell you, God likes taking underdogs. He likes taking the least that you would ever expect that he would use. Because one thing, they don't intend to trust in their own strength. And plus, he gets more glory when he takes someone who's, you know, been discounted by the world and he uses them to do great things, you know. So God uses the failures in this world. <laughs> Man, when I found out who God uses, I found out, you know, he, in First Corinthians, it says, not many noble Not many uh, wise, not many gifted are called. And so whenever I realized that, I thought, man, I'm overqualified. (laughs) If he needs people that don't have anything to offer, here I am, Lord, send me. (laughs) I found out I was overqualified. Because, listen, God isn't looking for some inherent goodness in you. He's not looking for your ability. He's just looking for your availability. He's looking for someone who is uh, willing to surrender. There is strength in surrender. Strength in surrender. So God didn't choose Abram or the Israelites for any inherent goodness that they had. In fact, he also told them, he said, I didn't pick you because you're righteousness. In fact, you're a stubborn people. <laughs> You're a rebellious people. So see, who God's good to, his goodness is magnified when you start to realize who he actually shows his goodness to. And so my second point that I want you to see, it comes out of Exodus 33. Remember where I said that God, when he was going to show him his goodness, he said, there is a place beside me on the rock where you'll stand. You know, as I was meditating on that and studying it, what I found out is that that rock is a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. And it reminds me of Matthew chapter 16. You remember, Jesus asked his disciples, he said, who do men say that I am? And they said, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist returned from the dead. He said, but who do you say I am? And Peter stood up and he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus got excited. He said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven and you shall be Peter. And upon this rock, I'll build my church. Upon the revelation of who I am, I will build my church. So the second point is that the glory or the goodness of God is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God's like, look at the life of Jesus. 
John chapter 1 and verse 1. We're going to flip over there. John 1 and 1. Because people will say, well, this is what I think God's like. Who cares what you think? (laughs) Excuse me for being so blunt, but I don't really care what you think. (laughs) Um, John chapter 1 and verse 1. Sorry about that. I just says, uh, in the beginning was the word. This word, word, is logos in the Greek. And I like what the Passion Translation uses for it. It says living expression. So the word, talking about the incarnate Christ, was with God before he became a man. And the word was God. Drop down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Drop down to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Listen, this this thing that we were reading in Exodus 33, that's right after God gave the law. The law is not the revelation of the righteousness of God. The law is not the revelation of the righteousness of God. The law was given to give us revelation of the sinfulness of man. And so many believers think that the law is a method of salvation. The law is not a method, it's a measure to show you how, fall, how short you fall of the perfect standard of God's righteousness. The law was necessary because people were comparing themselves to each other. And they were saying, well, I may not be perfect, but I'm better than this person, so I'm okay. Well, then God just said, well, look at this. (laughs) This is my perfect standard of righteousness. This is what you need to compare yourself to. And when you look at the law, you you realize when you just read the first ten commandments that you broke all of them. (laughs) So here's the thing. You are already disqualified. Man. And what the purpose of it was, was for you to throw yourself on the mercy of God and say, if this is what God expects, have mercy on me. And the Lord says, that's exactly what I wanted you to get from that. So the law came through Moses. Let me find my place here. But grace... And truth came through Jesus Christ, or came by Jesus Jesus Christ. The grace of God, or the favor of God, and truth come from Jesus. The truth of who God is. Look at the next verse. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Talking about Jesus. He has made him known. So if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Colossians 1.15 calls him the image of the invisible God. See, for, for millennium, people have imagined what God is like. And they've created all kinds of idols, false gods, you know, um, all kinds of things that they worship out of, the, out of their mind. But when Jesus came, we saw the glory of God in human form. Oh, man. 
If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And here's another thing. Any idea that you have about God that isn't seen in the life of Jesus is a misconception. That means you misunderstood the the message. (laughs) See, a message is only complete when the person receiving it gets what the person who's giving it intended you to get. Oh, man, that's powerful. God has been revealing himself through the ages, progressively. But people have taken things in the word of God, and they have assumed things about God that aren't actually true. Goodness gracious, I hope you're getting what I'm saying. But when Jesus came, he was the fulfillment of the fullness of the revelation of who God is. And listen, I never saw Jesus put sickness on anybody. I never saw Jesus cause a storm to wipe out somebody's house. I never saw Jesus cause a tornado to come along and blow somebody's house down. I never saw Jesus cause someone to fall into a pit of despair, depression, addiction, disorder. I never saw Jesus do any of those things. You know what I saw Jesus do? Heal the sick, cleanse the leper, cast out devils, raise the dead. I saw him be the life giver, not the life taker. Any, conce- any idea that we have about God that you can't see in the life of Jesus is a misconception. And some of those misconceptions come from the Old Testament. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. See, God was revealing himself progressively. So what they saw in the Old Testament was not the fullness of the revelation of who God is. Okay, Hebrews chapter 1. Somebody's going to get free this morning. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth will. A lot of people, they look to men. They look to some kind of ministry gift to lay hands on them and make them free. And I believe in laying on of hands, trust me. But the word of God, listen, you receive freedom through a ministry gift, you might lose it. But if you receive it through truth, you can hang on to it because the same thing that made you free is the same thing that can keep you free. If you receive freedom through a ministry gift, then you better get in the Word and get the truth if you're going to continue to walk in that freedom. And so this is the way to be truly free is through revelation of the Word of God. Hebrews 1 and 1 says, Long ago, at many times... And in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, this is talking about the Old Testament. There were uh, five ages in the Old Testament, five dispensations in which God was progressively releasing understanding of who he is and what his plan was to bring people back to himself. In verse 2, it says, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Listen, I tell you like this. In the Old Testament, they had every piece of the picture of Jesus. But it was like a puzzle that wasn't put together. So one prophet had this piece, another prophet had this piece. In this age, they had this piece, they had this piece. But no one could see the full picture. But Jesus, when Jesus comes on the scene, it's like the whole puzzle's put together and you can see the full picture of the revelation of who God is. 
In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Get this. He is the radiance of the glory of God. What does that mean? What is radiance? It's kind of like the sun has rays. You know, it's like you can't look directly into the sun. But the rays of the sun give light and warmth. Jesus makes us able to see and partake of who God is. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the manifestation of who God is in a human body. And then it says, in the exact imprint of his nature. I like the New American Standard. It says he is the exact representation of the nature of God. Jesus said, I don't say anything. Get that. Anything except what my Father says. I don't do anything but what the Father shows me to do. He was the perfect representation of God. So the revelation of God's goodness is in the person of Jesus, what we see in his life. Okay, so that was upon the rock of the revelation of who Jesus is. So let me say this about the Old Testament. What their understanding under the Old Testament was not incorrect. I used to think that. I used to think, well, they just didn't, they were incorrect. It wasn't incorrect, it's incomplete. It was incomplete. It wasn't the the fullness of the revelation of who God is. Okay, God was acting in ways he had to act in certain dispensations in the Old Testament. Okay, so in Exodus 33, remember, after he said, there's a place by me on the rock, he said, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. That word cleft means opening or a pierced place in the rock. So just as that first revelation of the rock was Jesus in his life, the cleft of the rock is the revelation of Jesus in his crucifixion. Oh, when Jesus was crucified, his flesh opened up a way for us to be in him, to be in him. And the third point is the glory or the goodness of God is realized in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The work of Jesus Christ is a finished work. It's complete. I'm glad it wasn't a partially finished work that I had to finish. I'm glad it's a finished work that I can stand on, that I can depend on, that I can rely on, and that I can partake of. Oh, man. On the rock, I'm just a spectator But in the rock, I'm a participator in the life and the nature and the character of God. In the cleft of the rock. There's an old hymn uh, called Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Jesus was, his body was broken. His body was pierced so that there would be an opening made for us to be in him. And now we partake of the goodness of God, not in ourselves, but in Christ Jesus. 
in Christ Jesus, we partake of the goodness and the glory of Almighty God. God's goodness, His glory is realized in our life by the finished work of Jesus on the cross when He was cleft for you and He was cleft for me. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Crucifixion, the crucifixion of Jesus, in it we see the severity of God and the goodness of God in one act. Here's the the amazing thing. God's wrath was revealed, but it was revealed against sin. And his goodness was revealed in, in his grace and his mercy towards sinners. See, God's wrath is real, but in his, because his goodness is who he truly is, he didn't want to pour his wrath out on you. So he sent his son. He became, God became a man for the express purpose of becoming our sin bearer so God could satisfy his wrath at the cross, pouring his wrath out on Jesus until his wrath was fully satisfied. And in both, in one action, both were fulfilled, the severity and the goodness of God. See, the goodness of God is magnified when you realize who he's good to. In his sovereignty, Before the foundation of the world, he had a plan not to pour his wrath out on you, to pour his wrath out on Jesus so that you could have the goodness of God. You could be a partaker of the goodness and the glory of God in your life. Through his crucifixion, we see who God's good to. And it's not to holy people. It's not to righteous people. It's not to the good people because there aren't any good. No, not one. But Romans chapter 5 says this, that we were helpless, we were ungodly, we were sinners, and we were enemies of God. And in that condition, Christ died for us. Who's he good to? I'll tell you who he's good to. Helpless, ungodly sinners who are enemies of God. That's who he's good to. (laughs) That's, (laughs) That's how anyone qualifies to receive the goodness and the glory of God in their life. Because they receive it through what Jesus did. Man, I'll carry that on into our life as believers. You know, we tend to think that we get in by the mercy of God, but after that, it's me. I'm going to let that one stew for a minute. That's the problem. That's the problem is we think we experience God's goodness when we start by what Jesus did. But then after that, we start determining whether we experience the goodness of God by what we're doing. Listen, transformation is the whole point of redemption. God wants our lives to change. God expects our lives to change. God has provided everything we need for our lives to change. But listen, your life doesn't change by what you do. Your life changes by a revelation of who you are in him. That's the problem is so many believers are so caught up in what they're doing that they, don't, they forget about who they are. And they simply, they, 
when you realize who you are, you're just simply being. Oh, man. Being a Christian is about being, not doing. Being, because you get a revelation suddenly of who I am in him. Salvation is not a reward for good works or any kind of righteousness or inherent goodness on your part. It was a mercy of God. <laughs> and anything you receive from God is received by the mercy and the grace of God. In fact, I'll take it a step further. When it comes to things that Jesus died for on the cross, when it comes to healing, deliverance, when it comes to prosperity, all those things that Jesus suffered in order to, for us to have all of our inheritance, it is never... God isn't deciding to give you those things on a case-by-case -case basis. He made his decision in one act. That's where so many believers are messed up. We believe we pray to God when I, okay, I'm sick, so I go to God, Lord, heal my body. And that God goes, well, let me check out how you've been doing here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to review your Bible reading and your prayer time. And I'm going to review your giving record. <laughs> and then I'll make a judgment. That is not. God made his judgment at the cross. Oh, man. <laughs> you say, well, you're saying holiness doesn't have anything to do with it? No, what I'm saying is holiness, the holier we live our life, the less the devil has access to our life. But it doesn't earn you anything with God. He's already given you everything through what Jesus did. Holiness is super important. Because it keeps the devil from having... You remember Jesus said, Satan comes, but he don't have anything in me. In other words, the door is shut. Holiness shuts the door to the devil. It gives him no open opening or way of getting in and bringing destruction into your life. So holiness is super important. But not so that God will love you more. Did you know your holiness doesn't make God love you anymore? Y'all don't sound very convinced. I got all day. <laughs> I'm kidding. Your, whole, your personal holiness does not make God love you anymore. Your personal holiness can make you love God more. Did you know that reading the Bible doesn't make God love you anymore? Reading the Bible will make you love God more. Do you know praying won't make God love you anymore? But praying can make you love God more. Oh, man, come on. Somebody. Come on, somebody. That's why we exhort you to get in the Word and pray and stuff, not so that you can impress God. <laughs> oh, but you know what? We've had a lot of help thinking this stuff. Now, listen, I'm not being critical, so don't, don't get mad at me. But, I, you know, when we put a board up and we give people stars for reading their Bible... We tend to relate that to some kind of system of performance. 
Listen, God isn't putting stars on a board to give you an answered prayer when you've read your Bible for 10 days in a row. I'm telling you, it's for our benefit that we grow in the word and prayer so we walk in holiness and it shuts the door to the devil. But it doesn't earn us anything from God. God made his one-time judgment on the cross. And he judged for humanity in Christ Jesus. You know, I'm going to close with this. But in Genesis chapter 48, Joseph brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to be blessed by their father, Israel, Jacob. And so in Jewish culture, the oldest, the firstborn, always received the greater blessing. And so uh, Joseph brings them to them, to him, to where uh, Ephraim would have the right hand placed on his head because that's where the firstborn should go. And Manasseh would be here. But something happened that was, was amazing is that Jacob crossed his hands and he put <laughs> what Ephraim deserved on Manasseh, what Manasseh deserved on Ephraim, which is a picture of the cross. The lot that should have fell to us went to Jesus. And the lot that should have fell to Jesus came to us. Oh! <laughs> the wrath that we deserve, the punishment that we deserve, the death that we deserve, the separation that we deserved was placed upon Jesus so that the blessing could come on you and I. Hallelujah. So that the blessing. You know, God has redeemed us from the curse. And he has qualified us for the blessing through what Jesus did for us. You know, it's a matter of will you receive it. That's all it is. It's to quit in our pride, trusting in our sufficiency. And put all of our trust in the sufficiency of Jesus. There is a doing, but it's not a doing to get. It's a, it's a doing to discover what God has already done and given to us in Christ Jesus. Listen, I want to encourage you this morning that as we close, there are going to be ministers up here. And I don't know what you're going through in your life, but you may be facing something that seems beyond uh, anybody's help. But I'm here to tell you that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that you could ask or even imagine according to the power that's at work in you. And these ministers up here would love to come into agreement with you to receive what Jesus provided for you when he died in your place. I don't care if, it's, uh, if you're having a uh, need of provision in your life, healing. Listen, if you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, there's nothing for you to do but to believe and confess him as Lord. Accept the free gift that he's given. And so I just want to encourage you. We're going to do some announcements, but don't let that take you out of what we're talking about here. If you're feeling in your heart right now a desire to act on what I've been talking about, hang on, come up here. Amen. Amen. Come on, Jesse.